Welcome to the Mental Horizons podcast, which is owned and produced by the therapeutic consulting practice of Virgil Stucker and Associates, LLC. Created by Stephanie McMahon and co-hosted by her and Virgil, the podcast shines light on the creative, solution-oriented, and optimistic thinking of individuals who are leaders in the field of mental health care. Previous episodes with associated blog posts can be seen on the website virgilstuckerandassociates.com where the book, The Family Guide to Mental Health Recovery, is also available. If you are a leader or know of a leader who would like to be interviewed on a future podcast, please contact us through this website as well. Hello and welcome to Season 3 Episode 3 of the Mental Horizons podcast. I am your host, Virgil Stucker. Today our guest is Dr. Rocco Murata, who currently serves as the service chief of the Transitional Living Program at Silver Hill Hospital in Connecticut. He is an assistant clinical professor at Yale University and is board certified in psychiatry and neurology and is a licensed psychologist. As a brief overview, today we will be hearing from an exceptional psychiatrist whose mantra is never give up. We'll hear about psychiatric treatment when combined with hope and patience as having an ability to help people who have a very tough time recover a positive life. We'll hear about creativity, especially using oxytocin in a very novel and special way to help people with schizophrenia. So more on that a bit later. A bit more on Dr. Murata. He graduated from Manhattan College, where he majored in psychology and Western civilization. He earned his PhD from the City University of New York in psychology and neuroscience, and his medical degree from Cornell University Medical College. After his residency in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine's Payne Whitney Clinic, he also completed a three-year NIH fellowship in biological psychology and psychiatry. Wow. Prior to Silver Hill, Dr. Murata was also a leader in psychiatry at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City, Danbury Hospital in Connecticut, and New York Medical College at Westchester Medical Center in Valhalla, New York. Dr. Murata, and I call him sometimes Rocky, focuses on patients with severe bipolar disorder and schizophrenia as well as on patients with behavior-disturbing brain damage. He and his collaborator, General Steven Zanakis, are also building an intervention program for treating stress reactions in patients recovering from COVID-19. Such creativity. I've also been particularly interested in Dr. Murata's research about and development of novel pharmacological interventions to improve the outcomes for patients with treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Most recently, his focus has been on the potential of oxytocin, which I've known as the love or the sort of binding hormone, as an augmentation to clozapine. Also, through other research, he's developed treatments for patients with brain damage, sought understanding of psychiatric issues of some patients with HIV disease, and studied the relationship between parts of the central nervous system and aggressive behavior. Dr. Murata has long focused on the needs of some of society's most vulnerable individuals. For years, I've known him as one of the best 
hardest working, committed and creative psychiatrists and psychologists in the mental health care field. So honored to welcome you today, Dr. Rocco Murata. Rocky, it is indeed an honor to have you here on our podcast today. Thank you, Virgil, for the really kind words. I mean, especially from you. You know, you're a man that we all hold in the highest regards for all that you've done for people over these years. And it's such a pleasure to be able to speak to you. Uh, my mother should hear this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rocky, you're, you're so kind. I've really enjoyed knowing you over the years and just seeing how, how much you help people and how it's a heart and head issue, I know, for you. So thank you. Again, welcome. I want our listeners to know as well that, you know, I've, I've talked about Rocky's research and there's some very interesting sort of research outcomes that have been published. We're going to have an accompanying blog post for this podcast on our website, Virgil Stucker and Associates. That's all spelled out and is spelled out. Associates is plural, virgilstuckerandassociates.com. So you'll find um, access to those research documents. So you don't have to memorize everything you're hearing today. You'll be able to look it up and read it on your own. Before we get into some of the main talking points, I know that you want to leave in people's minds, Rocky. I'd like to get personal a bit. You know, you're not an ordinary mental health clinician. That doesn't mean that there aren't a whole bunch of great mental health clinicians, but you are extraordinary. I have seen your profound dedication over the years to patients we may have shared. Amidst your busy days, I experience you as a psychiatric leader as well, always searching for and even creating new answers. So why? Why have you become and persisted as a leading psychiatrist over the decades? Would you encourage young people to pursue such a career as you have pursued, Rocky? The second thing is easy. They should because it's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing to be of help to others, you know. The reason I guess I am the way I am is because of the way I was educated, both by my parents and the world I grew up with and my, my teachers. You know, to tell people I was I was raised in the 20th century, but I was raised by 19th century men and women who had sort of very different values than the 21st century. I mean, I grew up in working class New York City. So when I was Catholic, so I went to Catholic schools and there were nuns who had dedicated their whole lives to people and brothers and priests. And so I went through that system. You know, you could never be as good as they were, at least on the surface of it. I think that's a major part of it. But also I had incredibly loving and kind parents and family who were always nice to everyone. I mean, I had uncles that I thought were my uncles that were children. My, one of my grandmothers had picked up during the depression had been abandoned and I didn't I didn't actually know that they weren't actually her children. She was, they were all such kind and loving people. So I, I, I think that's kind of an, an important thing. But also that at critical points in my life, great teachers and colleagues took me under their wing and uh, encouraged me. My, when I was a research fellow, my mentor was a very distinguished gentleman, Herbert Weiner, who grew up in Vienna in a, one of those you know, wealthy Jewish banking families. But uh, as I say, they had lost their wealth in Germany because of the, of the Nazis. But he'd come to New York, he'd gone to Harvard and then to Columbia. And uh, one day he called me to his office and told me that he and the other faculty had decided that I, 
I was actually not so, so good a scientist, but a better clinician. And, and they were arranging for me to go to medical school after finishing my PhD so that I could be, uh, you know, do what I was meant to do. And he, that was, he just said, you were meant to be a, a treating doctor. And so then I went to Cornell because he didn't want me to go where he had gone, which was Harvard and Columbia. He said he was afraid they would ruin me by getting me back into too much research that I needed to be to really be with patients. And Cornell is a wonderful setting for that, you know, the medical school in New York City. So I was blessed by his presence in my life and among other teachers. And so between my parents, brothers, the priests, the nuns, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Herbert Weiner and my professors at Cornell, I think that was the model for how someone should behave, you know, uh, to, to be a physician, to be a, a healer. And so I've tried to live my life uh, along those lines. Thank you for giving me a chance to say this out loud. <laughs> well, I, I, I can feel it. And as I hear it, um, I'm feeling I'm in the presence of a very spiritually rooted person. That sense of kindness, you know, that's really one of the very important attributes of what I call therapeutic community or therapeutic milieu. You know, someone may say, you know, what is kindness? But, you know, certainly we know if you don't have kindness. And you do seem to me to be one of the kindest people. And to hear the family that you had growing up in where kindness was valued, kindness, civility. Goodness, we need more of that, Rocky. And then mentors, mentors. They're so important. Sounds like you had some very valuable mentors who... The word calling almost comes out. You were meant to be this person one-on-one helping these individuals who, in a lot of cases, may have been, you know, the last chance, and you helped give them a chance. That was kind of embedded in the world. I mean, I was telling people about, just before I graduated from college, old Father Bozaga called me uh, to his rooms to have a discussion about a paper I had written. Uh, I thought he was old. He was probably 50 years old, but I thought he was old, you know. <laughs> and, and he, 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 he was, um, he was Tyrolean. Mm-hmm. So he educated both in uh, Vienna and in, in Italy because he had double citizenship. He accused me of heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Playfully accused me of heresy. He said, "He said, you know, you you have too much faith in the rational." He told me, you know. That's <laughs> and he told me he yeah. told me some stories about what had happened in his life and also terrible things in the war. And he had he then said, "Rock, I'll never forget." He says, "It is sentiment that will save us in the end. Only love and sentiment have any hope for us." <laughs> and that that always you know, every now and I'll just feel that. I'll feel Ronaldo Bozaga or, or Reynold Berger, depending on which side of the, the mountain he went down on any given day. Reynold Bozaga versus, you know, it's like Tonio Kruger in, uh, in the novel, or Ronaldo Bozaga. Which way will you turn? To the rational or to the sentimental and the beautiful? You know, that's fascinating. It's reminding me of some of the elements in a book on moral psychology I just completed by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who Oh, yes. It seems like, you know, we're sort of a mix of all of the above, aren't we? Mm-hmm. You know, if we held on just purely to the rational, sometimes I think that helps us sort of be stuck in the traditions. I don't sense you as that. 
It doesn't mean that it's irrational, but sometimes we step beyond the traditional approaches and say, if we tried X, it might be helpful. Yeah, I I don't know if this is jumping ahead a little bit, sort of like, you know, you're taught diagnostic schemes, you're taught names for things, but you've got to remember these are concepts that are developed. We try to do in our group is not think about the diagnosis, right? But to think about what are the symptoms? You know, what are, the, what are the sources of suffering and pain? Mm-hmm. But And that you look at clusters of symptoms and say, what might help this? And then, but also take into account the, the science of it. What failures have happened in the past? How have you failed? How have others failed? How have people seem to succeed? And then move slowly, carefully, because I was, my personal metaphor is um, there are landmines out there planted that you don't know about. You know, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you have to move slowly and carefully to get across the minefield. I don't, try, I don't think so much in diagnoses, except mm-hmm. to set a general path. So north, south, east, and west. But the real journey is much more complicated than a general, you know, a specific compass setting is a metaphor, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I, okay, stepping, I mean, the concept of courage also comes up here that I'm hearing you embody. Stepping forward, we could think that there's a mind with every step, but we figure out how to mitigate that risk and we step forward into a creative space. Give us some insight into this awareness that you now have that adding oxytocin, a hormone, to clozapine can help some with schizophrenia. And, you know, I I note that, you mean, this has gotten really serious. The Annals of Clinical Psychiatry recently published your article in May on this, along with, I know you had a team there at Silver Hill working on this together. But just that creative sort of stepping into that, you know, courageous place where you said, let's try this. How did all that evolve? And can, can you tell us a little bit about the benefit that this is already seeming to provide people? Yeah, well, the reason to take the step was we had failed to get past certain things. I mean, I was seeing, I mean, we, we treat lots of patients who carry the technical diagnosis of schizophrenia. And remember, the old name for that was dementia precox, dementia of the young, you know, it was, as a mm-hmm. relatively irreversible, terrible illness. So we were... And we, over the years, had begun to use clozapine, clozaril, which was the most powerful antipsychotic and relatively difficult to use because of various things. And not many people are using it in this country. So but we got more and more into that. If that was the best medicine, uh, that's what we would use. And not waiting years to get to that point. Half kidding, since we were talking about you know, sort of Catholic religious things or Christian things. There's the marriage feast at Cana, you know, and serving the best wine last. And Jesus is criticized. Somebody says, why did they serve the best wine last? I always thought to myself, why do we use the best medicine last? Why do we have to fail fail three or four Mm. times? So um, we still have to go about a Mecca about the rules, but I don't wait years to get there. I find my way to that spot quicker now. And we had also patients with brain damage, frontal lobe damage, who weren't getting better. And I just, one day I had noticed a, a reference to that some people treating autistic children were trying oxytocin, help with, you know, relatedness. And I just thought to myself that one of the 
problems with patients with schizophrenia was they had negative symptoms that weren't responding and they weren't well related, were sort of autistic to use the, it's called the Boilerian language, the language of Eugen Boiler who studied schizophrenia. And that my frontal lobe patients had, had the same problem, you know, they, they weren't related, they were unmotivated. So the first patient I tried uh, was a frontal lobe patient who got remarkably better. And in the midst of this, I, I actually discovered the tumor. They actually thought that she was just a burnt out druggie. And we, I found a frontal lobe tumor, so we treated her differently. And she now has a normal life. <laughs> on wow. Oxytocin. Oh, gosh. So it's really, she's just a sweetheart. And, and then I, for some reason, I didn't make the jump immediately, Virgil. I, you know, like for months, I was just, it was just something in the back of my head. I was looking for another appropriate frontal lobe patient. And I wasn't keying into something that was, which is that many of the schizophrenic patients showed a mild frontal lobe syndrome. And I, I think it, it might have been, <laughs> you know, Wallace Stacy, my beloved social worker, my sidekick, who might have pointed out to me, why don't you try them? <laughs> Something mm -hmm. like that. Okay. <laughs> Instead of searching for the next perfect patient. And then we, we just tried little by little with patients who had failed multiple treatments. The connection with the clozapine was that all the patients who had failed multiple treatments had ended up on clozapine. So that's how that happened. And we just began seeing changes over time. So we now tried it about 35, 36 times. And a good 30 of them have had positive responses, really good positive responses. But it was just one of those things. You read something and you, know, you make a connection in your head. And I didn't think of it as being so risky from what I had read about it. But now, There aren't really any side effects, are there? I mean, this is a hormone. It's a hormone, but it's an interesting thing because the dosages we're using are relatively small. And it's a hormone that's released in large quantities under certain conditions in uh, physiological normal conditions. Like it's a neuropeptide. So it's nine amino acids and it's released by the posterior pituitary, which isn't the part that most kids learn about in school, you know, with growth hormone and luteinizing hormone. What was first studied was that it was released when women breastfed because it, it added a milk letdown, right, for feeding a, an infant. And also at birth, huge amounts of oxytocin are uh, produced at birth. Around the birth time, it's, that's why it's the bonding and love hormones it supposedly helps the bonding between mother and child. And there's a huge literature, both in humans and animals on that. Like there's thousands of papers on oxytocin in the last 20 years. Once you get into it, you can get lost in, in all of that. And of course, then it led to people thinking, would it do something else? So in the last, I'm not the only one who's tried it in schizophrenia now. We think we're getting better results than other people because of a quirk. So here's, here's the interesting quirk. All the people studying it have been delivering it through an intranasal spray, trying to get it to absorb into the blood and into the brain directly up through the nasal passages. But we had it made for us to give as a sublingual tablet that would absorb under the tongue. And the reason we did it was simply because at our hospital uh, in the last eight or nine years, so many young people are admitted who have been using substances, abusing substances, right? And they've been snorting drugs, snorting cocaine, snorting heroin, snorting Adderall and other things. And we thought that if we, if we had a medicine that wouldn't you know, set off that association to snorting would be better. So we had it made 
and we think our results have been very good simply because we've begun using a different way of administering the medicine. So that's the uh, more fascinating part of it. Well, that's a that's, great insight. So other people have stopped using it because they weren't getting good effects. So we, and we just kept going because we thought so. And we had a little bit of trouble publishing initially because people said, well, that's not the way of giving it. You know, these guys haven't proved it absorbs properly. So you said you've tried about 36 people? Yeah, we've tried it 36 times, yeah. Okay. And we have 30-odd cases with positive results. We've had, what happens, you know, see, we're not doing it as a double-bind study because we're not, we're only dealing with patients who failed. And it's kind of like getting it, offering them something to see if it'll help. So we've never not offered it. But we just began doing it and then collecting the data so that we wouldn't get caught into all the complicated research things. And that's one thing we've been talking to others about, how to set that up. To do those kinds of studies are incredibly expensive, you might imagine, you know, with double-blind raters and multiple sites. They cost millions of dollars to run. And we've been doing it on our own. (laughs) Rocky, this strikes me as just like fundamentally clear that, well, something like this makes sense. If I think, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist like you, but I have spent a lifetime working with people with serious mental illness. And a lot of people are quite disengaged, disengaged, stuck, and they're not really relating well with the world. So here you have the hormone that can, it's not, you know, it's not a silver bullet, so to speak, but it's one of the ways of enhancing the person's capacity for relationship with no side effects. And it's like, okay, why aren't we doing this all over the place? So you're saying we need more research. Everything now is evidence-based, right? They can't take, because, you know, because of this epidemic, right? You can't get to see people. So the chief research, research, schizophrenia research at, um, you know, the state hospitals in New York, um, John Pierre Lindemeyer called me. He essentially said, is this really working? Yeah. In our hands, and he says, because you know we have hundreds of non-responsive patients. I mean, you know, sixty. Some people say eighty percent of p- patients who are diagnosed with schizophrenia do not return to con- full, complete lives. You know, and so the systems just accumulate large numbers of patients. And I said, you know, but it works for us. But we have a we have a very special setting. You know, and we have patients whose families have been able to afford to keep them with us for months at times. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we have a beautiful setting and we have a staff of saints, you know, people utterly committed to this work. I just was surrounded by an amazing staff of people for over a decade. Rocky, Silver Hill is a nonprofit organization, right? So if we happen to have listeners on this podcast who say, you know, this really makes sense. I'd like to contribute to help advance this work further. Is the door open for that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, we need other people to help us. We really, truly do, Virgil. A place like this accumulates a highly dedicated staff over time. You know, they were, I, was, I think of them as brothers and sisters because they take care of the patients and take care of each other. Well, that's terrific. Well, you mentioned before Wallace Stacy, and I know him as one of the most dedicated social workers. Goodness. Oh, what a blessing. Yeah, and then there's, of course, there's Emily Day. I mean, just all everybody from the people who clean the houses to the, you know, the 
and the young ones who come up from the schools. The real problem, of course, is insurance companies don't reimburse, so we can talk about that at some time. But if families, it, it's a great sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that comes from, you know, another thing that they would make us beat into our heads, you know, um, you know, love that what, what love does and, and the unconditional love of parents for their children and the people in their families. I mean, that's that's what we're surrounded by here. Oh, yeah. you're speaking my language, Rocky. Yeah. Well, you know, for our listeners, again, there's extensive documentation. This recent article in the Annals of Clinical Psychiatry, we'll put that on our blog, on our website, and invite you to take a look at this. It's very helpful, both for a family to look at it, uh, someone who's suffering from schizophrenia to look at it, a clinician to look at it. Great value. But when we were talking about our conversation, Rocky, as you know, I asked you for sort of three things you would like to leave in the minds of the audience. Maybe we can move into that part of the conversation. Is that okay? You got to remind me of what I said, though. Oh, I'll do that. <laughs> this will come up naturally, I think. I think it. Um, so again, we're speaking with Dr. Rocco Murata of Silver Hill Hospital, a creative both psychiatrist as well as psychologist. So looking at some of the values that drive us, um, one of the things you said, Rocky, is, you know, this is such a vicious cycle, this cycle of potentially hopelessness that can be created when you're facing a serious mental illness. And you said, Virgil, I want to make sure people know that they should, quote, never give up. Where does that yeah. come from, Rocky? How, how, do, how do you, you know, induce hope so that the despair is diminished so that people don't give up? I mean, we're seeing some of that already. Give us more. Well, you know, part of it comes in, they define an illness as being degenerative illness, right? Um, that's the way we were taught that in school, you know, and that, that's why they built these hospitals, which were warehouses at one point. And now we're caught in another trap, which is they've closed them so there's no treatment facilities for people, which is another horror. But I mean, you, you grow up in a world where these ideas of hope are, are, are critical. Um, you know, um, you know, faith, hope, and charity, right? That you have to have faith that there's meaning to life. I mean, uh, Dr. Doherty, Catherine, and I was, Catherine, I mean, I, we've, collect, we've collected a strange group of people. Cat, Catherine's father is an Anglican bishop. <laughs> okay. But she was... Uh, she was also raised, he, he was a bishop in South America, and um, she read Unamuno, both in, you know, which, in, <laughs> and this idea, this tragic sense of life, you know, I was talking to a bunch of my doctor friends who are, none of them are psychiatrists, they're, they're internists and uh, infectious disease experts, but we'd all come up through Manhattan, schools in Manhattan and, and Brooklyn, and we all read Unamuno, you know, and Benedetto Croce, you know, so okay. <laughs> of all things, when we were 15 and we couldn't understand it, you know, okay. uh, but this trap, the tra that the object is life is tragedy and your job is to behave, right? Uh -oh. Behave in such a way as to mitigate the tragedy and oh. to help others and to set example. I mean, we, they, they kind of less than subtly beat that into us, 
And so that the idea that your job is, you know, to be as a man, as a, you know, is to be, to do that, you know, it's odd. And I, and again, I, I I have a little trouble saying, but I grew up on a block where fathers had had parachuted into Normandy. One of my closest mentors was on Iwo Jima. My one of my two godfathers was on Iwo Jima. I'm named after men who were, you know fought through three invasions in the war. My uncle Rocco, my grandfather Rocco. I mean, I was, my grandfather said to me, you know, you behave, you hold yourself in a certain way with dignity and with courage and always with hope. I mean, they actually talk like that, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And so if you admired them, you wanted, you wanted to be like your father and like your uncles and like your great grandfather and your grandfather. I mean, so that there was a continuity even if we were 3,000 miles away from the family's mountaintop in, in Batsaligata, you know, there was still, those things were passed on. So the, the loving and kind mothers and grandmothers, but the not so stern fathers, but who said it's your job is to work hard your whole life because that's what it means, you know, to be a father, to stand up for your community, that's what you do. I mean, to say that we never give up, that we never, we always have hope, I think came out of just that, environment what else would you do you know <laughs> there's no other way to behave one of my dearest friends eugene Ciccone, eugenio huge we call him he's 70 something years old so when this epidemic started i was i called him up to see how he was doing so he's an infectious disease expert and i said eugene where, it was 11 o'clock at night he didn't answer so i kept calling him i said where are you and he says i'm in the icu and i said Eugene, what are you doing in the ICU? You're too old in this epidemic. He says, ah, Rocky, somebody has to do it. <laughs> so, oh, <God. laughs> I, said, I said, Don Landry, who's the chair of medicine at Columbia, another one of the guys. Donnie says, none of the old guys go in. You can't go in, you're going to die. I said, in this time. He said, that ain't so bad. I said, so, so I said, Eugene, so you're finally going to make it to the top. You're going to die as a martyr. <laughs> mm. Mm. And he said, well, it ain't so bad, ain't it? <laughs> it was just perfect for one of you know the whole gang of them. I just I admire them. So <laughs> you know, Rocky, I'm hearing something else also in your laughter. You talk about dignity, courage, and hope—the sort of three elements that sort of give you the resolve never to give up. But it seems like you certainly know too that humor is a part of it. Oh yeah. Well, between. Dr. Chacon and I, that goes back to childhood, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. He calls me a monster sometimes. <laughs> yeah, this, this message of not giving up. You know, I'm reminded again about how exceptional you are. And there are many exceptional psychiatrists and psychologists. But I'm reminded as I hear your story about a psychiatrist who met with a young man with his first diagnosis of schizophrenia and said to that young man, you know, young man, you know, give it up. What? Give it up. You've got this forever. You're not going to get better. There's no path forward. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't want to tell our listeners what the outcome was of that conversation, but you can almost imagine the devastation that occurred because the message was give up, not never give up. As I hear you say, never give up, I hear that as the message of recovery, not chronicity. Right. I think that's what you have to you have to believe. I mean, my godfather was a Marine, so they said no one's left behind. We all carry each other forward. I, right. mean, I, I was told that as a child. I feel so blessed. You know, it's kind of like my grandmother saved money up 
they gave me a couple hundred dollars to pay for medical school, not knowing how much it really cost, you know. <laughs> so mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. uh, but it's like in my mind, it's like I get to help and, you know, I get to sleep in my own bed at night, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel what a joyous life, you know, to have a loving wife and friends in a profession, but also a task that's important, right? The right. task that transcends oneself. I mean, I feel so blessed to have that. And when I speak to my friends, you know, I grew up with and some a little younger, we all say that because we were all boys, because we grew up in the same places that somehow or other, we all found ourselves into medicine, you know, and there's nothing else to say, Virgil, you know, that it was, a, it, it felt effortless in the end, though it was hard up front, right? Sounds um, like an infectious relationship. Yeah, well, was, if one of us could go, then all of us can go, right? If one could make the jump, and do, then we all could make the jump. We can carry one another forward. I love yeah. that concept of that working together. So if I think about someone with serious mental illness, and I think about positive outcomes, I think about three things. They generally look to restore relationship. They want to have a sense of belonging in the world. We yeah. all do. Sense of purpose and meaning. I'm hearing you really hit those two things. And then a sense of resilience. If we get knocked off track, we want to be able to get back on track. So if we, instead of helping to give people this message of never give up, you can recover. Now, recovery doesn't mean cure. We both know that. Yeah. But each of us can get to our highest level of functioning and fulfillment. We know that. Mm -hmm. You know, I recently read that we have about 8.4 million families in this country caring for average age 45, a family member with serious mental illness who has slipped into a state of chronicity. And these parents today are feeling very vulnerable. You know, they don't, they don't want to give up, but yet society in some ways has given up. And I think about those 8.4 million people wonder what would happen if we could get them even better treatment and even oxytocin so they could start reconnecting with the world. Oh, there's lots of things to be done. Part of it is political, you know, organization. And that's like something I see you doing. Like even this podcast hopefully would be part of it. So much of the suffering of the world is missed. We try to take care of what we can. So we never give up. I know the second point you wanted to leave in people's minds also is we'd never give up but guess what it may take some time right yeah positive change can take time how much time should we give it how much patience should we have hoping for recovery how can we keep moving we made rounds this morning and two of the young people who were terrible began to turn after eight or nine weeks you know, with us, but they had been three months with somebody else, right? And when we, when we chat about it, I say, well, when you look very carefully at the data from clozapine, which has been around for 60 years, you know, you don't get a plateau of its effect until almost a year out. And then you know what your next task is once you get to the plateau, right? What you have to do next. So you've got to give it a year to two years at the very least. And then sometimes over that time, you see a slow but real change that occurs. Sometimes you see something very fast, which is very gratifying. Let, let's, let's linger on this one for a moment. You're one of the few psychiatrists that I've heard clearly articulate the patience you have to have dealing with the serious mental illness of schizophrenia with the closerule. One year out is how long we may have to wait and have patience to really see some increased, some improvement. 
Too often we're looking for overnight, right? Yeah, well, what happens is they go to the ER, they have positive symptoms, they have hallucinations, agitation, someone gives them a shot. Uh, if they still have them, they give them a shot of something that lasts about a month and they discharge them. Well, they haven't really affected the, you know, the, the trajectory of the illness. They talk about what's the prescription. Well, the, the, in the ancient times, the prescription was a long list of things, right? It was like where you should live, what, you, what your diet should be, what kind of exercise you can get, you know, what herbal medicines you should take, what books you should read, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you have to be in a, in a proper environment for healing. When we were doing research on speeding up recovery from brain damage, there was always the positive interaction between the medicines you used and the setting people were in and the physical therapy we were giving, right? Mm -hmm. get one without the other. They were necessary, but not sufficient. There were, you know, there were complex interactions between mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the internal environment and the external environment and the treatments. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're faced with that kind of thing, you know. So I'm hearing you sort of prescribe an external environment that's pretty comprehensive. It's not just the pills. Right. It's the environment, physical environment, the staffing that you described there at Silver Hill, uh, for example, makes me think, okay, this is really a therapeutic community more than a hospital. Yeah, there is exactly true. On some of the units, there are staff members who've dedicated their whole life to it. You know, like Emily is available seven days a week. I mean, they don't pay to be available seven days a week. When I look at our... I hope I don't get into trouble for saying this, but when I talk to all our social workers at the hospital, my rough estimate is that they all donate at least an extra days of work in, in a week, which is more than a tide, right? That's two tides, right? That's my experience of the line staff, the nurses, the, the social workers, the aides, that they give hours every day and come in on weekends without pay to take care of the patients. So it's, it's again, their vocation. So if I, if I think of this concept of patience, you're giving me the patience that we as external providers of treatment and support must have. We can't always get immediate changes. And then the internal patience that the individual who has the mental illness must have. They have to still have hope, still have patience, and their families needing that too. It's really seems like they're so important to have a really well-woven team, I guess, Yeah. surrounding this individual with maybe with people who almost believe in them, even when they may not fully believe in themselves. I think that's true. And I think that's with the compassion, suffering together, but suffering together, not, not to hunker down in it, but to move forward in it. Rocky, from hope and patience, let's move to some of the factors that may try both hope and patience. <laughs> you know, how do you deal daily with insurance company practices that may unduly or negatively influence medical practice in an environment where, let's say, political decision-making isn't always in favor of the patient? Yeah, well, I, my internal dialogue is someday I'm going to, my blood pressure goes up every time I talk to the insurance companies and um, <laughs> I'm going to have a stroke one, one, one of these arguments. I mean, I, I do pretty well in getting some help for people, but it's not nearly enough, you know, because 
and the people I deal with, they're just dealing with boilerplate and contracts as written, right? I mean, uh, the phrase I've read years ago was that the healthcare system needed to be subjected to the discipline of the markets. Well, the discipline of the markets are about profit motives, right? And, mm-hmm. it, and people get lost in that. Uh, people, you know, somebody comes out second best. I mean, she was, I talk about old people, you know, when I was a young resident, if I ever was as young as a resident, because I, but uh, all insurance companies uh, guaranteed at least 30 days in hospital. And they didn't ever argued about it. And they had secondary benefits of, you know, 90 to 180 days. And I remember if I thought somebody could go home in seven or 12 or 14, whatever it was, I'd have to go to old Dr. Frosch, who was the medical director at Payne Whitney in Cornell, you know, <laughs> and he would pour me a little coffee and sit me down and, and let me argue for it. And then he almost always override me. <laughs> he said, because he, he said, you're a bit of a cowboy with your willingness to discharge patients. You know, I wanted to discharge them in 25 days, you know. <laughs> so he, so he sent me for a month to a long-term unit to put me back into line. You know? so, wow, those were the good days, actually. Oh, right? yeah. Today, it, what is it, 7.2 know, days, I think, is the yeah. average? Is it that high now? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but we, um, but well, what can we do? We, we hardly know what we're up against in three or four days, let alone coming up with a coherent plan. And that's why they over-medicate and give lots of medicines up front, and you don't really know where you're going. When someone gets to me, they've often been in, in hospital for months, back and forth, in and out. And then I strip the medicines away and restart. So, but I only could do that again because of the families that have, you know, made the sacrifice to give me that shot, give us all that shot. I, I try not to think about it so much. It would sort of take me offline, you know. Well, I, I, I hear you rightly focused as a physician one-on-one with the people in front of you, doing your absolute best. But there is this whole world around us that, you know, some, sometimes Rocky, it feels a little bit out of control. <laughs> Without a doubt, I mean, it's, uh, I grew up with quite anti-right wing politics in the city. I mean, the west side of Manhattan, mm. where you know, we all read the uh, New York Review of Books. And, and, and um, I mean, I was in the SDS when I was young. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all those boys I talk about were. Well, I was, I was marching in the streets myself. Yeah, so, so to me, it's, it's, a, it's abhorrent what goes on. I mean, we have half the medical beds we had, you know, a generation ago, let alone probably only, what, 10% of the psychiatric beds we had, yet we spend much more money in the systems. I don't, where does it all go, right? We have less resources at much greater expense somehow. It's massive, massive. Rocky, we're drawing, beginning to draw to a close, but would you have a moment to tell us just a little bit of the work that you're doing with General Sanakis? Oh, Stephen. He's, Stephen is, um, he's a physician. He's a psychiatrist also, but he was in the army for many years. And, and he and I have become friendly and he's, he did lots of work with you know, post-traumatic stress in, in, uh, in soldiers. And so since I, again, grew up around all these people who had been soldiers. He and I were sort of drawn together. Uh, and we believe that the COVID epidemic is going to lead to real problems with the mental health system over the next couple of years. I, I think of this as being an enormous stress on, on people. 
and on family structures and on social systems. And it'll play out through increased drug and alcohol use. That's one of the ways it's going to play out. But the other thing is that people not getting reasonable treatment early, which is going to play through the system. So we did a grand rounds on on setting out the problem. I mean, other people are doing this too. And he wants to build up a program and so use some of our beds that we could focus on the way in which not only the stress of the illness, uh, but having uh, as a general phenomenon of people in general, but also how it may play through those people who've been infected and how it might affect them in terms of their neuropsychiatric behavior. So my, I got actually had COVID. I was sick for a number of weeks with it. I noticed some changes in my behavior. I became short-tempered <laughs> and ate all over, among other things. So it's our supposition that we're going to see more and more of this. And so we're, we're working on that as an idea. He's a wonderful man. You should speak to him sometime or we should all get together with him. Or maybe um, that can be a, our next one of our next podcasts. Yeah. You know, I wanted to tell you about, because we were talking about uh, how people get better. So I wanted to tell you the story about one of the one of the young people. She, she grows up in Fairfield County, you know, upper middle class girl, and she goes to an elite college and she slowly comes apart, drugs, alcohol, promiscuity, essentially becomes a recluse, you know, treated multiple times, doesn't get better, finally comes to us. We get her on a closet bean and she's better, but she goes home and is living alone with her parents. And so she's stuck. And after about a year, we put her on oxytocin. And to my eye, within days, there was a remarkable change. And she and I are talking and I said, do you notice any difference? And she says, yes. And I said, what's the difference? She says, I can look at you. <laughs> oh. I can look at you. And I said, yeah, I've noticed that since I've known you, this is the first time we've made eye contact. And then she began to talk. And I said, and you can talk to me now. And she said, yes. She says, the, the internal anxiety is gone. I can actually be with people. And I, I said, what does it feel like? And, and Virgil, so she does this thing where she, she puts, you know, like the statues of Buddha, the happy Buddha. Yes. You know, so she puts her, her hands on her abdomen and she sort of rubs her belly and says, it just feels relaxed now. And, <laughs> and, and I've heard a variant of that from a lot of the uh, young people. What happens with the medications is that they, they feel something in their body that changes, which then allows their spirit to change, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the ancient beliefs about what we call schizophrenia is that it involved this terrible internal state of anxiety, which disrupted a person. They were always in some dread. And what some of the kids are telling me is they, that dread remits to a certain extent. So then they can do something, then they can be with people, right? Then, so she then could go to finish college and then she could get a job and then she could live on her own and then she could have friends. And she says, well, people know I'm a little strange, but you know, now I have happiness. Now like, I, you know, I'm not fearful the way I was. And that's, if you can get that response, which you don't always get, but sometimes we see that and it just chills you to see that kind of thing, you know? Oh, it gives me chills, Rocky. Oh, what a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. One person at a time. Yeah. Rocky, you're a remarkable person. I thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. And I'm sure that the listeners that we've had have been encouraged by remarkable psychiatry and psychology, and moreover, encouraged by someone who's had a lifelong of courage, 
and kindness and dedication to some of the most vulnerable. Okay, so for the listeners who may have questions, the email is r for Rocco, rmarotta, M-A-R-O-T-T-A, that's all one word, rmarotta, at Silver Hill Hospital, one word, Silver Hill Hospital, one word, dot org, rmarotta at silverhillhospital.org. And in addition, remember that on our blog, on our website, virgilstuckerandassociates.com, we will post some of the published research, especially about the oxytocin that uh, Rocky has informed us about. Thank you again, Rocky. Any final words before we part for the moment? I think people should know how much you've done for people all these years and how if it wasn't for what you've done, people like you, we, we couldn't take the next step to getting people better, which is to get them into supportive environments for an extended period of time, how critical that is. I'm heartened by your words that we do this together. We carry one another forward. And I'm sure that applies to some of our listeners as well. Thank you again, Rocky. This is Virgil Stucker. This has been Mental Horizons Podcast, Season 3, Episode 3. Thank you and good day. Bye-bye. Bye.